0: This is a reading of Kraken and Sage, a story by Bruce Sterling and Rudy Rucker. We're releasing this now. It's a story we've never published before, and it was written especially for our new collection of stories, Transreal Cyberpunk. The volume will be coming out in February 2016, and as of mid December 2015, we're raising money for it with a Kickstarter project. Kraken and Sage, by Rudy Rucker and Bruce Sterling, read by Rudy Rucker. Early in his career, Jorge Jones turned himself into a supercomputer. By deftly biohacking the Golgi apparatus and mitochondria power molecules of his cells, Jorge brought every part of his body into his mental network. With a little hacker yoga, he pushed his mathematical thinking out of his busy brain matter, down his spine and nervous system and into the flexing meat of his muscles and tendons. He used his fat cells for data storage. Soon after this feat, Jorge's activated ponderings allowed him to create an organic programming tool he called the Hydra. A user could design a Hydra program, download the code into a customizable virus known as the Jones flu, and then infect some hapless plant or animal to carry out whatever strange demands possessed the programmer. Thanks to the hydra, life on earth could be forced to serve mammon's passing whim. Whales carried passengers, sheep grew colored wool, Jones flew cows where milk-emitting silos big enough to live in, feverish chickens could fire up within their insulating feathers and roast themselves on the spot. Exquisite glass bottles grew upon winery vines, slowly filling themselves with champagne. Clean water and snug shelter were as trivial as disposable phones. The Jorge Jones Hydra was the dominant global-scale tool of biotech, patented, licensed, and the only platform of its kind. The Hydra supported armies of engineers, divisions of lawyers, battalions of designers, and conspiracies of investors. A stack, a network, a global octopus. Then the bubble burst. It was a misty morning in the mountains, blessedly quiet. Jorge Jones was surrounded by living timber graciously bent to his will. His possessions were few but perfect—a polished wooden bowl, a voluptuously curved chair, a carved table, a horn spoon, and garments of down and spider silk. Jorge Jones, the guru of organic computation, had no more need for copper, silicon, or plastic. Other than his organically programmed crows and squirrels and the occasional freebooter, nuthatch, woodpecker, or beetle, The visitors to Jorge's sequoia tree were few and far between, and he liked it that way. Jorge Jones liked life to go entirely his own way, and he still had his hydra working for him. He'd infected his his crows with the Jones flu virus, and they ferried raisin bran to him, and he'd coaxed this sequoia tree into hollowing out a spacious two-story apartment within its massive trunk a hidden cave with a few choice pieces of elegant temper-foam Milanese furniture, and a generous balcony with swirling Art Deco railings. Design was important to Jorge. His last marriage had broken up over his wife's horrid appliance choices. So here he was, after the Revolution, living alone in his sequoia, in an ascended state of computation and meditation. He'd become a sage of pure science and lofty conceptual metaphysics with no annoying legal, ethical, social, economic, or military complications. He was finally free of nagging hassles from his best friend, or more likely his worst enemy, Frank Sharp. But even in the trackless bird chirping depths of the redwood forest, Hohey could never quite get Sharp's wise guy voice out of his head. Why not turn your dog into a methane tank? "'Sharp had once said, and burned its farts for a space heater. "'But Jorge's dear old dog was long dead now. "'Jorge had become a forest sage, "'and he had no time for Sharp's worldly antics anymore, "'nor for any mundane thing that wasn't serious. "'A foggy spot of light bumbled around "'in the damp green branches of his primeval tree. "'This glowing apparition moved with a considered urgency, "'like the Zen butterfly that never hastens even when pursued.' It shifted, drifted on the air like ancient plankton, a floating thing of many soccer ball facets, a gleaming polyhedron. Its planes were wobbly and bubbly, a stripped-down, minimal, ultra-primitive life form, its grip on life so tentative that a bubble pop would annihilate. Slowly and steadily, the luminous herald drew closer, tracing a path through the three-dimensional maze of the Torre's great tree. The uncanny cyst was feeling its way toward him with wiry, delicate cilia, that writhed from its tinted geometric corners. The plankton bubble bumped into the sharp tip of a broken branch. Jorge held his breath, but the blob didn't burst. Those shining membranes were tougher than they looked. Jorge grew uneasy, watching the creature draw closer. No use trying to enjoy his morning tea and cereal. The floating entity was homing in on him. But who knew that he lived 30 meters up a tree in the middle of nowhere? Even the government spooks who'd spirited him to this mountain redoubt had agreed to forget about him. Frank Sharp had arranged that deal. Frank Sharp, deal maker, Not exactly a government agent, not exactly a criminal, not exactly a lawyer. Frank presented himself to the world as a high-paid consultant, offering services worldwide to high-tech industries who'd lost their way in the tangled jungles of humanity. Jorge called out to the shining airborne bubble. Frank Sharp, no more schemes. You have nothing I want. In response, the lantern-like creature dipped and drew close, its facets swirling with color, and just then something touched Jorge on the back of the neck. Fuck! screamed Jorge, whirling around, all traces of sagely aplomb gone. It was a second levitating polyhedron, all in shades of black and gray, this dark floater had crept up from behind him in utter dewy silence, arriving at Jorge's bare neck with the stealth of a vampire bat. And this one was indeed the avatar of Frank Sharp, hired to escort the first blob, the colorful one. Step by computational step, that first bubble shaped itself into a model of the head of Jorge's former student, Betty Yi. Delicate, intelligent, and more plain than beautiful, Betty Yi was a techie of the Pacific Rim. Although her floating head was merely a mock-up made of taut organic membranes, Betty had her usual expression, an ingratiating yet self-serving look. Betty had always been ambitious to change the world in her own direction. "'I'm honored to meet you again, Dr. Jones,' said the floating head of Betty Yee. "'A wild storm, then a day of sun.' "'Seeing you lifts my heart.' "'You know my policy about leaving the world behind,' Jorge scolded. "'I told you my plans back at the Stanford Biological Accelerator.' "'Yo, yo, yo!' yelled the dark Frank Sharp's floater, "'maneuvering to wedge in, in, bubble-like, between Jorge and the head of Betty Yee. "'Don't forget what she did, you professor. "'She robbed your lab and stole your ideas.' "'You said you would let me explain the crisis to him,' admonished Betty Yee. "'I said I would let you plead, yes,' said the frank, sharp floater. "'If gold lucky pays by the minute, and the clock started when our bubbles drifted up this tree.' "'I can be brief,' said Betty Yee. "'Dear, good, wise Dr. Jones, you changed the world. "'In China, we adopted your changes to our methods. "'We embraced them. "'We extended them. "'Mistakes were made.' "'Back up,' said Jorge.' Did Frank just say he was ratting me out by the minute? We must have your help in Shenzhen. We've aroused a dangerous computational form of life. We set that po- process running. Now we can't shut it off without your skill. I named the new outbreak the Kraken, Frank confided, after Tennyson's poem, The primordial sleeping monster of the deep, roused by the folly of man, arising for the end of the human days. Jorge's gaze flickered between the pretty glowing lantern and the vampire bubble that had poked him. Betty, why are you bobbling around with this guy? Don't you know any better? Gold Lucky Company hired Mr. Sharp as our connection man, Betty confessed. It was the only way that I could find you in time to save the world. Her problem is giant monsters made of intelligent mud, said Frank. Betty Yee nodded her floating head. Awkward. Jorge considered the situation. What's in this for me? Let me explain that face-to-face, Frank offered. Betty's not around here because she's fighting for life in the Shenzhen disaster zone. As for me, though, I'm running this floating bubble while I'm actually standing right down at the base of your tree. Frank Sharp had arrived in the flesh. There had never been one episode when that situation hadn't turned out to be crap. Jorge's windless wheel was powered by 300 organically computing squirrels. Once Betty's Chinese bubble had burst in a glowing patch of slime, the rodents set to work with brisk muscular efficiency. They were a jostling tide of fur inside the squeaking wheel. The sequoia's little-used lift cage hauled Frank Sharp straight up the trunk. His character well in place, Frank Sharp stepped into the treehouse and raised his elegant brows. "'It's a privilege to visit your sequoia retreat, Jorge. I know you deserve your serenity after all we've been through together.' I told the big boys back at the agency, I told them, Yo, we can't squeeze blood out of a redwood stump. Let Professor Jones be. He's old. He's lost it. He's pretty near death. Forget him. We'll find some younger math genius who can avert this Lovecraft-scale catastrophe. Jorge looked at his stained fingertips, seeing them very clearly just now. They were dirty, with a glossy sheen over the dirt. A bum's hands. He hadn't bathed or shaved in days, or maybe weeks. Was his chosen life so great? Frank Sharp, by contrast, looked like he'd just stepped out of a five-star hotel lobby. "'What other genius?' Jorge said. "'Oh, well, we both know about you math guys. You always do your best work before thirty. "'Maybe so, but we live to be a hundred, countered Jorge. "'Can you tell me again who you're working for this time?' "'I work for the high-enders on any given day,' smiled Frank." Whenever an industry peaks, they start to die, so they call in a futurist. I serve them their final cheese course. Me, I'm not an industry anymore, said Jorge sourly. I'm a lonely, resentful old man with some broken patents. That's all thanks to Betty Yee and geopolitics. Be fair, Jorge. It was never easy to keep a guy like you out of prison or the nuthouse. Jorge glared at Frank. Before you showed up here in my sequoia tree, I had a chance to end my days in dignity. What the hell do you do with yourself way up here, besides feeding your squirrels? I perform gedanken experiments, said Jorge. I confront great conundrums that can only be resolved by sheer Einstein-style chin-stroking. Sharp stared blankly into the gently waving redwood foliage, baffled by this assertion. Finally, he shrugged. Fine. Feel sorry for yourself. Sulk. Me? I'm a man of the world, okay? Because if I don't take power, I'm a dirt common schnook. I'm the nameless ox that dies in harness. Cut to the chase, Jorge. Save the world for me. I need the world. Jorge had a crushing rejoinder ready, but when he saw the obscure pain haunting Sharp's darting darting, dishonest eyes, a moment of sagely compassion touched him. Despite all that had happened between the two of them, he found it within himself to no pity. All right, Frank, we should love the world. Keep your world off my back, and I'll depug your problems on principle. The disaster-stricken city of Shenzhen was entirely closed to air traffic and Internet access. An industrial region beset with giant mud monsters had to clamp down on unhar- unharmonious thinking. However, Frank Sharp, a hired Chinese agent, was able to lay out the full, uncensored story for the ears of Jorge Jones, global disaster consultant. While working R&D for the potent Gold Lucky Corp., Betty Gee had abused Jorge's patented technology of organic computation in a self-referential and radically improper manner. Goldlucky had planned to recreate the so-called Cambrian explosion of earthly evolution, an ancient geologic epoch reborn in the form of creatures generated by Jorge's organic computations. Let a thousand mutants bloom! Goldlucky's software engineers feverish at the prospect of productivity bonuses had imagined they might extract a master program from China's enormous big data fossil record of primeval worm tracks, ammonite shells, and algae stains. This was a straightforward matter of collecting, collating the entire Cambrian fossil record and stochastically interpreting the fossils as ideograms. Unfortunately, this brilliant scheme, like most software startups, had been an abject bust. When Betty Yee took over the research program, she went much smaller, more nanoscale. She focused on a special class of fossils known as stromatolites. Stromatolites were pancaked stacks of calcified primitive algae. Betty's efforts revealed that these fossilized microbial mats were a computational archive. The fossil stromatolites were the historical record of millions of years of super-advanced single-celled life a full core dump, source code, and stack trace for the primeval cellular automata soup that had covered planet Earth for nameless geologic eons long before nature had evolved any spines, mouths, or bones. The dense primeval brew, the oldest form of life on Earth, had been a hot and sour soup of computation. Of course, no one had believed Betty's science findings, so she'd boldly ported this fossilized database straight into the gold-lucky medicated mud factory. Then everybody believed, because behold, the Kraken awoke. Frank and Jorge were quickly ushered past customs in Shenzhen, because no mere functionaries were allowed to inspect Jorge's latest version of his Hydra tool, newly revamped for battlefield action. Betty Yi met them with an armored Chinese limousine. Why did you publish that paper in the Hong Kong Journal of Genomics about stochastic flows across membrane diffusors? Jorge promptly demanded. Was it to break my patents? He'd been brooding over the issue during the long trans-Pacific flight. Then you remember my work, said Betty Yee. She sounded pleased, but in person she looked careworn. Betty was dressed in standard global nerd style, pink jeans, white, white athletic shoes, a sweatshirt with a corny graphic, a purple windbreaker. Her hair was newly streaked with gray, and she had dry crow's feet at her temples. "'My patents were not about commercial advantage,' lectured Jorge. "'I put the patents there to protect this world from things men were not meant to know.' "'Your patents weren't stopping anyone,' said Betty, "'especially not your national security agency and our Chinese cyber war units. "'While you've been lying and living in your tall woods like an exiled Taoist poet, "'everyone here in China has been building hydro units for years.' Jorge locked eyes with his former student. He was angry, but she steadily returned his gaze. As man and woman, they were of different different generations and had once had an entirely decent, productive teacher-student relationship. However, many years had passed. Betty had become a woman of discretion, while Jorge, although ancient, was not entirely dead to male lust. "'Yo, what's up with the stromatolite codes?' Frank interrupted, seeking some normalized conversation." Betty blinked and cleared her throat. Imagine the unthinkable patience of Plankton, passing endless yugas under the sun, she offered, the legacy of living earth before plants and animals, much like the placid, stable, civilized Middle Kingdom before the West showed up and wrecked the Confucian utopia. A nanotextile gray goo singularity is a legacy, said Frank Sharp. Like, thanks a lot. The singularity was never ahead of us, said Betty. Betty. It was always behind us, on hold, deep in limestone strata. In the distance toward the battered metropolis, the Chinese earth shook with disaster. Hoarse and loud, military observation planes were flying in slow circles, dozens of helicopters swarmed overhead, some of them napalm bombers, some of them carrying tanks of water and fire retarded, some of them medics carrying off the wounded. The armored robot limo rolled with cybernetic slickness toward the gold-lucky plant, swerving to avoid the bomb craters in the the road, skirting the slumped rubble of charred, collapsed buildings, sometimes taking a detour to avoid the urban structures that were still in flames. The earlier airstrikes were still releasing their bent, stinking billows into the glowing sky, spark-filled pillars of dust and toxic urban smoke. The first Kraken mud monster caught Jorge and Frank by surprise, stepping up from behind a glass office building like a threatening ghoul in a funhouse ghost ride. And then another, another, and another, 10 meters, 20 meters, 30 meters tall. Although they were faceless and eyeless, the Kraken monsters were very alive. They stank powerfully of digestion and sewage. They walked the terrified earth, huge, slimy, shaggy, bipedal golems of computational mud, flaking off writhing chunks in the crude shapes of horseshoe crabs, scorpions, sea worms, sea cucumbers. The cellular computers were recruiting modern germs from the local peasants, synergistic duck, fish, and manure ponds. And the monsters promptly assimilated any bewildered animals or hapless human locals that fell into their slimy grip. They're made of smart cells embedded in flowing mud, said Betty Yee. They compute in parallel. Each cell processes food sense and physical contacts, gradients of wetness and light. I released them from the fossil stones with Professor Jones's language for organic computation. I freed the Kraken with the Chinese hydra, and now, I know, mistakes were made. The slick clay golems rose up much faster than the angry choppers could burn them down to Chinese porcelain. A herd of the salty, reeking, stop-action claymation monsters rumbled past and over the limousine, powerful on their vast, dented legs. The Kraken monsters were huge, and with every astounding step on the Chinese soil, they grew visibly bigger. Frank straightened his tie and gave a thin smile. Betty, your military attacks don't even hurt their feelings. His exquisitely tailored black suit made the leather of the limo look cheap. They're generating body forms like they're leafing through Charles Darwin and highlighting the hot parts. Let us join the welcome banquet at the Gold Lucky Plant, Betty intoned. We must formulate a war plan. The Gold Lucky Welcome Banquet was a Spartan emergency lunch where terrified employees wolfed down cold noodles from stamped aluminum bowls. Jorge here can degrade, attrit, and suppress your krakens. I have no doubt, Frank Sharp told Betty Yee. The American press calls him the John von Neumann of organic computation. Do you still read the American press? said Betty doubtfully. That's not what mattered, said Frank, deftly chopsticking his chili ramen. Because Johnny von Neumann was a shadowy, zoned-out guy who was in there, at the start, with the players. Von Neumann created the first digital computer, also the first atomic bomb. That's the American way. Throw the big brainiac at the big problem. Save the moral indignation for when you can pay for it. One man against the universe. Just keep moving his bar, extending his finish line, until he comes up with some ecstatic, dreadful breakthrough that can cap it all. If he fails and his brain turns to slush in his hospital bed, that's all part of his legend. Betty decanted a plastic squeeze bottle of hot sauce into her lukewarm noodle bowl. Why do you say such painful things, Frank, she said, meeting his eyes. Dr. Jorge Jones is a great man. You torment him. You mock him. Why? Free speech won't kill a great man, said Frank. Your mud monsters might kill him. You know what killed von Neumann, said Jorge? The hydrogen bomb tests. He just had to go and gawk at all of them. He didn't have the sense to stay home. For two minutes they ate in silence. There were certain matters that Jorge Jones and Frank Sharp never talked about. Like the treason charge that had hung for years over Jorge's head for his ruining spook encryption with his massive stash of secret and heretofore unknown prime numbers. Through a Byzantine legal maneuver, Sharp had finally gotten the hacker charges dismissed. As a quid pro quo, the secrets of the Hydra, Jorge's programming tool, had been handed over to the Washington security establishment. Jorge himself... Legally scot free and carefully stripped of any possible role in government, business, or academe, had been given control of a nice, tall sequoia tree in a quiet, misty federal park. An ingenious secret arrangement, but of course it could not last. The vampire that was power might be buried, but then every living thing around it would rot. The Hydra's design specs and its proprietary control software had been released by a malcontent at the NSA. Or else hacked by Chinese military disguised as computer science students. Or maybe just sold off by Frank Sharp, who rarely asked for more than 10% on a deal. All that pain and trouble to keep things tight and ship-shape, and the genie still blew out of the bottle. The genie whistled howling through the bottleneck and flew worldwide on the cloudy winds. They were like that, genies. John von Neumann transformed this world, and so did I, said Jorge over the candied bean cakes. If some obscure Hungarian exile can turn America into an atomic computational superpower, then it'll be easy for me to obliterate Chinese Kraken monsters with my hydra. Jorge wiped his mouth and set down his chopsticks. So what? The reward for being a low-empathy know-it-all. Sensing Jorge's moment of self-doubt, Frank leaned forward over the flimsy folding table. To live alone, a man must be very like a god or very like a wild beast. This Chinese banquet wasn't supposed to have a cheese course, said Jorge. Our conversation would be easier if you'd ever studied literature, said Frank. Politicians adore the classic quotes from ancient Greek. But for you, old geek, what is it? Differential equations? Jorge stared him down. Being rescued by you is worse than prison. Betty Yi looked from one to the other. Gentlemen, we have a problem in the field. Shenzhen had been a prosperous city where an industrious people pursued their own happiness and minded their own business. Now it looked like Godzilla's birthday cake. Betty Yi herded Frank and Jorge into a robot helicopter, which promptly rose aloft. I feel so ashamed, she announced. The world would be a happier place if this had only happened in Washington instead where you vainly seek to control the rest of us, and where men like Frank Sharp make dirty money. I am the King Hell Futurist, barked Frank Sharp over the noise of the rotors. You wanted to bring in Jorge Jones, the sage of organic computation? You had to suit up a cowboy first. Take us to the front lines. During the brief flight, Jorge hastily prepared the hydra that he'd brought along. Jorge's hydra had four bright blue eyes set into its waist and a working mouth inside its ring of eight tentacles. Each tentacle had an opening at its tip for puffing out viral spores. This hydra's interface consisted of EEG patches that, you could, that could monitor Jorge's brain impulses and thus, to some extent, read his thoughts. Jorge wore the hydra atop his head. Fun, said the hydra, settling into place. Its human voice was high and cheerful. Good boy, said Jorge, brushing tentacles from his eyes. A battlefield was a young man's arena, but in a cyber war an old man was ferocious. Firing from the chopper with the advantages of air supremacy, Jorge destroyed 25 of the Krakens in rapid succession, poofing them with aerial squirts of hydra mist. The Krakens crumbled below him like sand castles in the tide. The remaining monsters absorbed this battlefield fact on the ground. Stumbling and lumbering, they retreated, redesigned themselves, and returned to combat. The second wave of mud golems were armored lumps. They resembled dog-sized trilobites and cow-sized ankylosaurus dinos, each with a spiky ball on its tail. There was even one ghastly thing like a rolling, gawping human head that Frank Sharp boldly insisted was clearly modeled on himself. Solving the relevant reaction-diffusion equations in his head, Jorge reprogrammed his Hydra's viral mist and began picking off krakens again. He'd fly low, get close to one of them, and then poof! Frank Sharp began yelling unwanted advice, a target observer calling the shots on the slaughter. Zap that one who's a crooked pig, and melt that ugly sucker looks like a snail, and then get the slobbering kangaroo. God, they're ugly. Then, with covert suddenness, there were no more krakens in sight. I seriously doubt this is mission accomplished, said Jorge, as they got back into the helicopter. With me killing them and Frank insulting them, these Cambrian mud monsters are going to want to build a kraken a kilometer high. But for now, all was calm. Frank Sharp began yelling unwanted advice, a target observer calling the shots on the slaughter. Zap that one who's a crooked pig. Melt that ugly sucker looks like a snail, and then get the slobbering kangaroo. God, they're ugly. Then with covert suddenness, there were no more krakens in sight. I seriously doubt this is mission accomplished, said Jorge. With me killing them and Frank insulting them, these Cambrian mud monsters are going to want to build a Kraken a mile a kilometer high. But for now, all was calm. Back at Gold Lucky's damaged, smoke-stinking headquarters, the uniformed employees were gleefully celebrating Jorge's swift victory with rounds of sorghum liquor. Betty shyly proffered an attaché case loaded with high-denomination bills. "'That'll do for earnest money,' said Frank, stuffing the sheaves of money into his pigskin bag. "'The Chinese invented paper money,' said Betty. "'The old ways are simple and strong.' "'It's world-changing stuff, money,' nodded Frank. "'A shame what Jorge did to crypto money and the electronic funds transfer. "'I warned him to knock it off with that prime number research, but he was a wild man.' Jorge had no brakes in his younger days. He didn't even know what brakes were. The victory the victory party was as brief as a stock market rally. A short distance from the corporate HQ, the kraken's roaring and burbling had resumed. "Oh wow," said Jorge, realizing something. "I've been dissolving them, but their spores became seeds. They rise back up like a battalion of Chinese clay soldiers." "I'm losing the thread here, Jorge," Frank complained. Plankton, stromatolites, horseshoe crabs, trilobites, dinosaurs, everything but jellyfish and ants. And now it's clay soldiers? Betty was regaining her confidence. Our brave pilots are improving with the napalm, although the Kraken is made of germs that compute. Germs are just germs. We can't lose with Professor Jones and his Hydra. Thing is, put in Frank Sharp, it's the Hydra itself. That's the real Kraken. The hydra, metaphorically, is the American Kraken. Jorge wanted to protest, but Frank forestalled him with an upraised hand. Consider the prophetic words of The Kraken by Alfred Lord Tennyson, said Frank in full lecture mode. I shall quote this visionary Victorian work in extenso. Below the thunders of the upper deep, far, far beneath in the abysmal sea, his ancient dreamless uninvaded sleep, the Kraken sleepeth. Faintest sunlights flee about his shadowy sides, above him swell huge sponges of millennial growth and height, and far away into the sickly light, from many a wondrous grot and secret cell, unnumbered and enormous polypi winnow with giant arms the slumbering green. There hath he laid for ages, and will lie battening upon huge sea worms in his sleep. Until the latter fire shall heat the deep, then once by man and angels to be seen in roaring, he shall rise and on the surface die. A ringing silence followed. Only a fatuous English major would call a kraken a metaphor, said Jorge, fighting his way clear of Tennyson's spill. Organic computation is real. scientists spat Frank sharp robot, Betty Yee was upset. You foolish men will never save China. Why do you quarrel as if your catastrophe is all about you? Frank should become the Kraken if he thinks it's poetry, said Jorge. Would make me laugh. You, a Kraken, like a trademark balloon of hot air in a Thanksgiving parade. Is this the sage of computation talking, said Frank Sharp? You're no sage. You're California granola, Jorge. You're a nut, a fruit, and a flake, all the time kvetching like some granny who spilled tea on her embroidery. We'll see, said Jorge, sending cool War of the Worlds alien-type thoughts into his personal hydro unit still hibernating atop his head. We'll see who spills what. He puffed a newly programmed cloud of viruses into the room. Frank Sharp tried to hold his breath, failed, grew apoplectic. What are you doing? That stinks. We'll feel fevers for a few minutes, said Jorge, and then we're good. Jones flew. The new sub-program will give us somatic compatibility with the Krakens. That way, even if it devours us, we'll retain autonomy. Can we get back to the fighting now? asked Betty Yi. Our tanks are waiting. Take us to where the Krakens roar. Their armored tank clanked across a kilometer of wasteland to their next battlefield encounter. This time Betty had brought along her own Chinese-built knockoff of the Hydra. She was getting maybe a little dubious about the military merits of Frank and Jorge. Her rig was a full two meters long, a stumpy torpedo, with twelve snaky viral spore-puffing tentacles at one end. I like the look of production-level biotech military gear, said Frank Sharp, studying the Chinese Hydra. Mil-spec design, it's so functional and conservative, and you load it up with what? Did I hear you talking about glass ampules of powdered computation? I have ammunition on hand, yes, said Betty Yee, opening a small wooden case. My lab synthesized a batch of the viruses that Professor Jones used in the battlefield before our break. One single ampule of them is enough. The Hydra will remember. I'll activate it now. She tossed the little glass tube into into the Hydra's mouth. It chomped up the glass round as if it were a peanut. But, hey... "'But but hey, we need to stay loose,' said Jorge. "'Change tactics on the fly, with our boots on the ground. "'This hydra of yours, can you program it?' "'Certainly,' said Betty Yee. "'Its interface is voice-activated. "'However, since this is classified military hardware, "'it only speaks Chinese.' Frank Sharp looked smug. "'Hell, I know enough Mandarin to order up a two-day party "'with sword-swallowers and dancing girls.' Frank and Jorge found their places inside the squat Chinese tank— with an anxious Betty offering final advice on its interfaces and affordances. Just then, another slimy giant kraken lurched up from the muddy soil, implacable as a Frankenstein monster assembling itself in a grave. It rose a hundred meters high, roughly humanoid, and flaking off fractal chunks as before. The newly spawned stromatolites were continually and obsessively recruiting fresh germs from the dirt, slurping shit up, knocking shit down. Frank barked broken mandarin at the tank's complex dashboard, and the tank roared forward. Their heavyweight Chinese hydra puffed out a vast cloud of viral stink gas. The collapse of the shambling 100-meter-high kraken was total and abrupt. From the bottom up, its flesh deliquesced into diarrhea. A sudden, awful computational crash into a vast sewer puddle of shit germs. Next, crowed Frank Sharp. A passing military helicopter framed another Kraken in a target beam. This monster resembled a giant starfish humping across the tormented soil. Jorge lowered the tank's muzzle and picked it off, letting the over-engineered, military-grade Hydra puff its cloud of viruses out through the tank's barrel. On they rolled, crunching a swath through a killing zone of bursting stromatolites. Let me kill that giant scorpion on my own, said Frank Sharp, hankering for a big game-hunter-type personal kill. Exhausted by the horrific stench of the infected mire, Jorge let Frank tend to the massive Hydra. Frenzied with battle lust, Frank somehow felt it necessary to give the weapon a rousing pep talk in his pigeon Chinese. The Hydra misinterpreted Frank's jabber as a series of commands regarding its program codes. It reformulated the virus that it was squirting. The result? Far from being destroyed by the randomly tweaked Hydra spores, the scorpion, scorpion golem was galvanically energized. Moving with unholy, frenetic speed, it dug into the topsoil, scratching out a massive hole, shooting up clouds of dust and then fractured rock. Deep in its newly dug stone den, the scorpion proceeded to infect the landscape. The dirt and stone underfoot were morphing into a supernal kraken, a litho being that heaved the surroundings like an earthquake. Earth tremors tossed the mighty tank around like a Hong Kong plastic toy. Frank and Jorge were battered against its harsh interior like two wasps trapped in a bottle. Clawing their way through the hatch, they abandoned the hydra and sprinted for higher ground. Nice work, Jorge jibed at Frank Sharp. Very professionally done. Panting and rubbing their bruises, they were wobbling weak-kneed on a hilly parking lot, surveying the growing havoc. The ground was erupting with long, stony arms of bursting rubble. These violent tendrils of fracked rock could easily swat down a helicopter. It wasn't acting like that before, said Frank uneasily. What did I do? Those are Frank Sharp-modified scorpion cells. Silently, Frank unwrapped a pack of Panda-brand Chinese cigarettes, lit one, and offered it to Jorge, who was still talking. The Kraken cells wriggled down between the grains of sand and soil, down through the cracks in the rocks, all the way down to the water table. A natural paradise for the right kind of microbe. Your new cells multiplied in darkness, hyper-exponentially, and they roared back. Nice fast turnaround on that cycle, Frank. Hats off. I'm sure this is all for the good, said Frank, coughing on rock dust as he struggled to light his own cig. Take a big-picture perspective, man. What we formerly thought of as organic life on Earth arose as a local glitch. The Cambrian explosion was a matter of moving a stalled system to a higher level of efficiency. Initially, our kinds of multicellular bodies were monsters. Our ancestors were glitches in the cell colony status quo. And then the system rolled down a hill, through a valley of chaos, and up to the top of a higher peak, producing us. Sure, we say we're higher forms of life, said Jorge. Both sides of a morphogenetic bifurcation. Always say that. You can't compare human beings to primeval mud monsters. Yes, I can. Because I just now did the math. Did the math? That's... I did the math with my ass muscles while we're standing here smoking bad Chinese cigarettes. Unsteadily, Frank Sharp lit a new cigarette from the stained butt of the last. I guess you're saying that we're different, but not any better. We're all creatures of Earth. "'Figures in the dance.' "'Exactly. "'And now that your tweaked scorpion "'has fracked itself into the water table, "'we'll never kill the Kraken. "'We need to cut a deal here.' "'Okay, how?' "'Surely we humans have something "'that immortal Kraken mud monsters would want.' "'But how do we even talk with them?' asked Frank. "'They're made of germs and dirt. "'They don't have eyes and ears.' "'I'm thinking they hear us anyhow,' said Jorge. "'We could talk about prime numbers "'and the Riemann hypothesis,' he added, "'blowing smoke.' Or maybe the poetry of Tennyson, because Tennyson is fucking buried, like them. Frank tried to take offense, then laughed sourly. We could tell the stromatolites about quantum entanglement-based networks, continued Jorge. Being virus-based, they must be closer to that issue than us. Maybe we could interest this intelligent mud in establishing a broader global presence, said Frank. More followers, a ubiquitous brand. The mud could come out of the underground and go mainstream. Yes, yeah, said Jorge, livening up. You're on it, Frank. Promo. Buzz. Offer them a deal. You yourself would have to turn Kraken for the big meeting, you understand. I'm game, said Frank. With insouciant bravado, he dabbed his finger against one of the fallen mud monsters. took Okay, let's wait. Let's do this right here. Okay, here we go. I'm game, said Frank. With insouciant bravado, he dabbed his finger against one of the fallen mud monsters and took a taste. Frank's voice grew louder and more insistent as the cellular computation invaded his body tissues. Riddled with viral activism, he was lecturing on and on about media and sociology in the modern Chinese novel. About the long-dead expat Japan-based author Lafkadio Hearn, about viral push-pull cool hunting webbots, about the archetypal nature of industrial design, even for cellular entities. The palpitating mound that had once been Frank Sharp grew upwards at a supersonic speed, drawing dirt into itself. As a comradely gesture, the Frank Sharp Mountain had a sharp valley set into one side, and this left a field where Jorge Jones could survive the tectonic devastation. Tiny Chinese fighter jets buzzed around Frank like biplanes swarming King Kong. No, no, much smaller than that, like butterflies above the slopes of Mount Fujiyama. And then, the eruption, a deep subsonic rumble and a sharp explosive crack. Starting from the top, the Frank Sharp mountain dissolved into the sky. The peak was shattering into dust. The eruption continued for half an hour, volcanic, unstoppable, spawning a vast plume that mingled with the jet streams, sowing the Kraken substance across every square centimeter of the old planet Earth. The Chinese urban landscape on the far side of the mountain was as lava engulfed as ancient Pompeii or Herculaneum and Jorge Jones still stood in the valley along the near edge. A very tasty world, rumbled Frank, slowly subsiding back to his old self. I'm the one. I've got the answers. The shock and awe subsides. Everyone is a Kraken, all the time, everywhere. Sermons in the stones and good in everything. Jorge, Frank, and Betty spent some quality time discussing matters in the hot springs near Jorge's sequoia, playing with the freaky minnows, looking at rocks and fossils, revisiting that idea that the sedimentary stones are archives. Jorge and Betty are getting closer than before. Turns out there's an entire Golden Age archive down there in the geological strata. It's like cave paintings or cuneiform or hieroglyphs Or even like the cool old paper SF magazines, the ones that primeval sci-fi fans used to root through in the 1950s before computers were invented, the protocols of the old ones. Betty finds she can use the profound Confucian-style New Age teachings of the prehistoric worm tracks to educate the global biotech Kraken, and thereby to rectify all names and to set forces in harmony, and even to live with Jorge in his tree for a while. But then she goes home to rebuild her city. Frank throws in his lot with the trilobites. He retrofits his mitochondria and becomes a half-billion-year-old cultural relic. Occasionally he appears in a five-gallon goldfish tank at an ultra-elite gathering of the planet's new trillionaires, emitting long speeches via piezoplastic hookup on his primitive, kittenous shell. Mostly though, Frank dwells at the bottom of the Hot Springs by Jorge's Sequoia, where the heavy action is chemo- chemosynthetic and the cultural movers and shakers are so far underground they don't even need eyes. Jorge gets Frank registered as an endangered species to assure his friend of long-term peace. Then Jorge takes to painting Taoist ink scrolls, the great misty Kraken mountains and the little old man in the robe. The mountains are vast and eldritch and timeless, And the sage is just a passing figure, crabbed and energetic in his wise little niche. Now and then Frank surfaces in the spring and jets out some sepia for Jorge's inkhorn. The Kraken and the sage, they don't compete or quarrel or annul one another's being. They just make the scene. They're just plain there. The End